I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Rosetto, Pennsylvania, an insular Italian-American community, was largely unknown to society until a 50-year study comparing mortality rates was published in the American Journal of Public Health in 1992. In the 1950s, when heart attacks were an epidemic in the United States, a leading cause of death in men under the age of 65, and years before the advent of cholesterol-lowering drugs and aggressive prevention of heart disease, a physician found that in Rosetto, virtually no one under 55 died of a heart attack or showed any signs of a heart disease. Without a special diet, active lifestyle, extraordinary genes, or special living conditions, Rosettans defied the odds. In fact, Many struggle with obesity where 41% of their calories came from fat. Drinking was not uncommon, and they smoked heavily. Despite these habits, there was no suicide, no alcoholism, no drug addiction, and very little crime. Death there was simply from old age. Researchers realized that it was the community that made the difference. Many homes had three generations under one roof. Rosettans visited each other, stop to chat on the street, or cook for each other in their backyards. Rosettans created a community that insulated them from the pressures of the modern world. Could the idea of community be a stronger force than we realize? It seems that we are in another period of divisive times, particularly in America. How do we come together to build stronger communities, like Rosetto? This is Spaces Podcast, where we aim to elevate the appreciation and understanding of the spaces we occupy every day. 
Hello! My name is Demetrius. This is Michelle. Hey everyone. This is Jason. Hey guys. And you're listening to Spaces Podcasts. Welcome back everyone. Uh, today we are discussing communities and planning and sort of um, large-scale development. So Michelle, the place that you live now, is it a planned community or is it um, something else? It is a planned community. Okay. But it was planned in the 50s. Okay. Um, maybe even the late 40s. I don't actually know, but I'm going to guess the 50s. My house was built in 1958. Okay. And it was actually an Irvine company development many, 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 many moons ago. Um, so it lays out like a, like tract housing, but doesn't necessarily feel so much like that anymore because there's been so much reinvestment from the homeowners over time. So, Mm. so many of the original homes have been torn down and rebuilt or remodeled, um, elevation changes and things like that. So Mm. you do see some original houses, which are pretty neat. And then you also see homes that are very clearly 1960s style homes. Um, But you also see 1950s style, kind of like single story ranch homes and things like that. But definitely a planned community. Okay. Just not of the modern era. Yeah. The ones that are still like original are those people that are original buyers of age. Yeah, it seems that way. Yeah. So so it's kind of fun because you'll be walking through the neighborhood and you'll see these homes that really just almost feel like your grandparents' house, right? And, and they're maintained meticulously, you know, yep. they've always have gardens and, and their grass is trimmed and cut and the house is beautiful, but you can tell there's not using modern, you know, materials and things like that. Yeah, that sounds right. That's a lot like our neighborhood because ours was built in the fifties as well. And there's, again, with ours too, there's been a lot of teardowns, a lot of remodels, like we're going to do a remodel, you know, next year. But, uh, but the sun, there's a few where you're waiting for the turnover because, the original owners are still there that are probably paying nothing or own it outright at this point, And it really hasn't changed much. But again, for the most part, the maintenance has been, you know, nice. So it's interesting. So would you guys say that you have sort of a community feel through in your neighborhoods? Is it, and is it uh, sort of, so my, is it manufactured or more natural? So, so the community, the community in, in our neighborhood specifically is unreal. Um, at least on our street and, and, you know, like a really good example, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but the 4th of July was just, you know, this past week, which is actually one of my favorite holidays. Right? I already know where you're going. Yeah. And so, <laughs> I mean, we basically, our whole street like gets together and, you know, not, not during the day, like family comes over barbecue pool, do all that kind of stuff. But then we basically, it's like world war three on our, on our street. Cause we have unincorporated areas of Santa Ana around us, which, you know, stuff is legal. And even I had a bunch of like ground to air mortar style fireworks this year. And it's like, but every, like you, you literally I had to like talk a cop out of our street to let us keep going basically. And what happens is there's even other people around our streets that like put lawn chairs out and watch our street go crazy. But then on top of that, we even have like a situation where, uh, during the summer we have, um, movie nights on our street. So people do like, um, they come down a cul-de-sac, big old screen, do that kind of stuff. And, um, it's pretty awesome. So we have a pretty good community. 
Yeah, I'd say we our our community is similar. Um, maybe not in the way that you've celebrated the Fourth of July, but every awesome. single year, uh, the last day of school, you know, the entire street gets together. They shut down the street. They get um, a TK Burger food truck oh, that comes cool. out. Uh, they get you know the cotton candy. There's what are they? The video arcade trucks like that come through. Those game whatever. trucks, yeah, yeah. and then they big old rigs. They do you know little block part well i should call it a big block party so it's pretty exciting that's cool um but i think part of what makes our community kind of unique is just there's parks interlaced within the the neighborhood and obviously there's schools that are interlaced within the neighborhood and the way that the uh the neighborhood was designed is there's actually um parkways and so it really makes for a really nice walkable community so you see at all hours of the day people walking their dogs or pushing their strollers or just couples walking through the neighborhood. Um, That is common. You see it every day, every hour. Um, So, yeah, I'd say we definitely have a community. I have a random question for you because I remember when you guys were first, you and and, uh, your wife were looking for uh, a neighborhood or a house. You'd really like the port streets. And the port streets, you know, for those of you that have no idea what that is because you don't live here, um, it's this area in Newport Beach, I think it actually is, right? And... Every street name is Port something or other, and but it's just this big community. Kids are running around street to street, house to house, like all over. It's very well known, and I know you liked that area. How do you compare where you're at now versus that? Because to me, that was like a crazy community feel at the Port Streets. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's similar. Um, honestly, the part of the reason why we chose the neighborhood we chose is ultimately we talked to a lot of people who just said that personality wise which is kind of funny but you know neighborhoods have personalities that get For established sure. over time and so there were many people that we talked with our realtor and then others that just said personality wise uh we would fit better in the neighborhood that we ultimately oh, cool. chose within but the other thing too that we really liked about our neighborhood is its proximity to the bay and to balboa yeah. island and yeah. the fact that we can hop on our bike in fact this past tuesday uh, the wedge and the the yep. surf has it's been going nuts. has been yeah going nuts absolutely. So Tuesday night we hopped on our beach cruisers and rode down to Balboa Island, picked up tacos, and then took those tacos over to the wedge and sat you know on the sand and just watched. I feel like we have to the describe, surfers go crazy. Yeah, I think we have to describe the wedge. So the wedge is actually this pretty cool little spot here in uh, Southern California. Is it actually Laguna or is no? It, it's Newport Beach. It's, it's Newport the Beach. very tip of the peninsula, the very end of the peninsula. So yeah, so physically and geographically, it creates this crazy funnel when the swell hits proper, and it just absolutely ignites. I mean, and it's and it's a super dangerous shore break too, like Very super dangerous. super dangerous. But uh, but it's it's immensely amazing to watch and experience. And when it's really firing, kind of like when you talk about people like in big wave cities, like you were just in Hawaii, we we're talking about. You can feel the ground shaking when the mm-hmm. wedge is firing. You can feel it shaking That's back absolutely on the streets. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's super cool. Yeah, and, and, and there's a look following. It up, people will go out. Yeah. So oh, yeah. case in point, I mean, to your question, that yeah. that was one of the driving factors. It's just its proximity and location to other amenities, neighborhood or community amenities that the port streets didn't offer. It would have offered something yeah. a little different. So the reason I ask is to kind of get a baseline of your experience in your communities. Mm -hmm. And we have uh, a special guest today that's going to actually has some expertise. And he is a principal at KTGY Architecture and Planning. His diverse portfolio includes the Desert Willow Resort, Brea's La Floresta, the Honda Center, Anaheim's Arctic, Bosa Row, 
a mixed-use gateway project in Little Saigon and Chapman University. He has experience from both sides of the aisle, having served on numerous local, regional, and national boards, including past two-term mayor of the city of Yorba Linda and past chairman of the Foothill Eastern Transportation Corridor Toll Road Agency. He's a fourth-generation Southern Californian and raised his family in Yorba Linda. Please help me welcome Ken Ryan. Ken, thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, we're happy to have you. And I think, uh, like I mentioned in your bio, the coming from both sides of the aisle, I think it's going to really help the conversation um, and kind of get us to understand how a community can come together from each side. Great. So aside from your bio that I just read, uh, anything else that you would like to kind of go into in your background about you or KTGY? Well, just, you know, family background. I'm a fourth generation Southern California. They indicated my great grandfather founded the L.A. County Fair. My grandfather was agricultural commissioner of L.A. County for 44 years, 1918 to 1962. I love Southern California. Um, we're blessed to, you know, have my family uh, here, raise my family and, and uh, work professionally here in Irvine and look forward to the conversation today. I have a question. What years did you serve as mayor in your Belinda? I, I'm curious just for yeah. context of what sort sure. of may have been going on you know, in your Part Belinda. of that reason, I mentioned the family background. We, we believe you should get involved in your community. So my family has a history of that, but also urban planners should. I had a college professor at Cal Poly that said, go out there and be successful when you graduate, whether that's private sector or public sector, but you have a duty to give back to your community and get involved. So I was a park and rec commissioner for four years. I was a planning commissioner for six years. And then uh, I ran for office in 2000. I served two terms as mayor from 2000 to 2006. I ran in a special election. felt very American. It was an open seat and I ran for the open seat. And our town had taken sides and I said, you know, the town's tired of taking sides. And so it felt like I ran for the right reasons. Um, so the, those, are, those are the six years I served, but in, in elected terms, it's like 38 years in dog years, basically. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so going to the, the planning part, yeah. um, can you give us a little insight into what a planner actually does and, um, you know, kind of what your day-to-day looks like? Sure. You know, the... Uh, Uh, No matter how big or how small a project is, whether it's two acres or 36,000 acres, and I've been really blessed in my career to to work on all of that, uh, planning is about uh, creating a heart and soul and creating community. And we sort of like to say that it's, it's, it blends uh, all of the um, uh, design expertises together, you know, architecture, landscape architecture, urban planning. It's about creating community and, uh, and understanding the place in which you find yourselves. Every community is different. So there's timeless design principles that you utilize when you start thinking about moving forward with a plan. But it needs to be authentic and connected to place. Yeah. So I'm glad you mentioned community there, Ken. Uh, we're going to dig into that a little bit more. But before we do, I want to jump back and give our listeners a little bit of understanding about kind of where we've come from with planning, how it's evolved, and in our development of communities. And to do that, you got to go back in time.
Early 16th century, King Philip II of the Spanish crown issued the Laws of the Indies, the first form of city planning in America. It regulated social, political, religious, and economic life amongst colonized territories. The document also detailed steps to create a community, standardized presidios or military towns, pueblos or civilian towns, and missions. It identified labor to construct these structures, site conditions, architectural style, and community space for recreation. Early on, zoning didn't exist beyond these initial concepts, but by the turn of the 20th century, city planning began to take form. The Macmillan Plan, a landmark comprehensive plan to update Washington, D.C., focused on parks and monuments. The Garden City movement, which emerged in England, would soon be introduced to America, and the first official permanent city planning commission in the United States is established in Hartford, Connecticut. Prior to this, Planning commissions were disbanded once a plan was developed. The 1920 U.S. Census reported that more than half of the population lived in urban areas. Exploration and zoning and regulation was needed as buildings began to push the limits of their environment. Skyscrapers blocked light, factories contaminated air, warehouses encroached on desirable areas, tenement buildings presented horrible living conditions, and much more. While subsequent regulations addressed specific incidents, it was on November 22, 1926, when the landmark Supreme Court ruling on the case of Euclid v. Ambler changed everything. In short, in this property rights case, the Supreme Court's decision unintentionally set precedent for government to control urban planning, leading to an explosion in zoning ordinances. In 1928, construction began for Radburn, New Jersey, a community designed to adapt the Garden City concept to America. Innovations included separation of vehicular traffic, housing clusters around parks, and organizations that handled municipal functions. Then, the Housing Act of 1934 and demand from families returning from war spurred the rapid growth of suburbs. The Federal Housing Authority had subsidized builders who were mass-producing entire subdivisions, and home loans were made available to hopeful buyers. One leading example is Levittown, a large suburban housing development by William Levitt and his company Levitt & Sons. Built in Levittown, New York in 1947 and Levittown, Pennsylvania in 1952. Consider Levittown, Delaware Valley, USA one of the world's largest single-unit housing developments, located in the fast-growing industrial area between Philadelphia and New York City. Here, 16,000 low-cost homes are being constructed on spacious landscape lots, bordering gently-sloped, winding streets. This is no mere collection of homes, but a carefully planned community, complete with modern schools, churches chosen by the residents, but conforming architecturally with other Levittown buildings. Playgrounds that leave nothing to be desired. And modern shopping centers that offer easy access without through traffic. Suburban success reinforced the lower density development model across the United States. As land and housing values increased over time, those that had access were largely able to generate wealth and a pipeline for generational wealth. However, 
Federal agencies and businesses that supported housing growth also had policies that denied access to minorities, particularly African Americans. This denial essentially herded minorities and working class into substandard urban environments. In addition, mounting inequalities of employment opportunities, education, and general resources cultivated crime, drug distribution, and drug and alcohol abuse to the extent that the effects still echo today. These systemic issues create a barrier for advancement. The task of progress falls to leaders, political or otherwise, to navigate these groups around these barriers. I called a childhood friend of mine to join me in this discussion on community. Okay, Sticks, thank you for joining me. I won't use your government name that I know you by. <laughs> Born and raised in Watts, California, Sticks has been successful in the music industry as a rap artist, producer, and songwriter, working and or touring with other artists like Iggy Azalea, Cody Simpson, Steve Aoki, Sander Van Dorn, J-Rock, Tyrese, and Snoop Dogg, to name a few. He's since taken up the torch of a community leader in Watts and the greater Los Angeles area, leveraging his success to develop the Think Watts brand, platform, and foundation. created my platform to do what I like to call my force for good, and that's all my community endeavors, which constitute uh, permanent supportive housing for homeless and re-entry ex-offenders, school, you know, inner city and urban community school refurbishments. We also have a program called the MIC program, which is Music Inspires Change, where we build studios inside prisons and we allow the inmates to, you know, record musical compositions. Now, I was born and raised in Compton, California for the first half of my life and have now lived in Orange County for the other half. And it's very apparent that there's a clear difference in terms of environment, access, and resources. Life experiences are very different between these types of communities. I think the lack of resources and opportunity is the reason why there are issues within society. And when you don't have resources or the opportunities to either pursue an action, a dream, a business, when you don't have the information on how to sustain, then problems occur. I would say the definition of problems would be, you know, there's death and murder and, you know, just violence all the way around when people feel oppressed. For instance, this not too long ago, we wasn't even allowed to read and write. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we talking about like really not that long ago. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just, um, I want to say just just over 200 years ago Mm -hmm. that we were considered three fifths a person. That's two grandmas ago. <laughs> it's crazy, right? Yeah. It's only like two grandmas ago, if you really think about it. Yeah. And prior and to that, you were considered property. Exactly. So if you really think about it, education and information is a new thing for us. As much as we say, oh, it exists out there and there's no excuse. Like we just figured out what reading is and writing is. Yeah. So if we, if we, could see that perspective as agreeable, then of course, understanding the information and financial literacy skills it takes to survive in the, in the United States of America is only a small drop 
will understand what that even is or how to even accomplish that. Yep. So we're so far back. It's like we just now really learning how to read and write. So now we got to understand what we're reading and writing. We need to now understand financial literacy. We need to understand what it takes to be an entrepreneur. What is entrepreneurship? How do you start your own business? What is money management? What are stocks, bonds, mutual funds? What is real estate? What is life insurance? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. We, we haven't even begun to scratch that surface to understand any of that stuff. As housing boomed from the late 1930s through the 1960s, planners had to evolve quickly. The early 1960s marked a transformative period for planning. Kevin Lynch's The Image of the City was a groundbreaking look at how residents viewed a city. He found that people process a city through five components, paths, edges, districts, nodes, and landmarks. Planners have since used this thinking to improve connection and wayfinding in cities. Jane Jacobs, a journalist, published The Death and Life of the Great American Cities, which criticized planners for losing touch with the people who live in cities, leading to more appreciation for existing structures and street patterns, and directly inspiring the new urbanism movement. And Rachel Carson published Silent Spring, which popularized the concept that humans can damage the environment, sparking environmentalism, sustainability, smart growth, and the eventual creation of the Environmental Protection Agency. By 1981, the first town to represent new urbanist principles was built in Seaside, Florida. Based on research into other southern coastal towns, Seaside, designed by Andreas Duani and Elizabeth Platter Zyberg, focused on walkable neighborhoods, sustainability, traditional neighborhood design, transit-oriented development, and other practices to encourage a sense of community. It influenced many future suburban developments and master plan communities. In urban areas, Richard Florida's book, The Rise of the Creative Class, published in 2002, suggested that cities revive their economies by attracting residents who worked in knowledge-based industries. Likely similar to whatever your local downtown area may be, he proposed developing amenities that would draw these types of residents, such as coffee shops and art venues. This technique successfully raised property values. However, to his later acknowledgement, the approach led to affordability issues as restaurants and luxury apartments followed and gentrification set in. While suburban communities thrived and urban centers evolved to attract the creative class, we must also acknowledge the divergent path. Until recently, not many were aware that ethnicity had been a significant factor in the history of American communities. Racism and racial biases have historically been utilized as a tool of class warfare to divide and weaken the working classes. This practice leads some working class individuals that share the ethnicity of the wealthy majority to support causes and act against their own interests. This volatile environment fractures and destroys communities. From redlining and the 1921 racially motivated destruction of Tulsa, Oklahoma's historic Greenwood District, also known as Black Wall Street, to police violence, shooting, and unwarranted calls on African Americans, 
even on an eight-year-old little girl that was selling water from her own property for a fundraiser to go to Disneyland. San Francisco 911, what's the exact location? Hi, yes. Hi I'm having someone that um, does not have a vendor permit that's selling water across from the ballpark. Uh, talk about that? Okay, one second. Let me transfer you over to the police department. Hang on. Great, thank you. Sticks, Thinkwatts, and others actively work to combat deterioration and build up their communities. Recently, Sticks and Think Watts partnered with the Los Angeles Clippers to renovate 113,000 square feet of a Los Angeles school's facilities. I uh, partnered with the Los Angeles Clippers um, as an ambassador to, I, it starts off with I created their theme song for the team. Okay. It's called Clip City. And it went from there and it was supposed to stop there, but I told them, no, <laughs> I don't want it to just stop with just a song. I also want to do things in my community. And the Clippers organization is very big on community and giving back to to the community. And when I say to the community, I mean urban communities mm-hmm. like Los Angeles, Watts, Compton, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, they asked me, so what do you want to do? And I, was, and I told them there's a school that haven't, haven't been touched in 30 years that could use some attention. It's a huge space. And I know the community and the kids would appreciate it. It was like, all right, cool. So they did a walkthrough and we knocked it out in 10 days. The renovation included a gymnasium with a full-size basketball court, 13 outdoor basketball courts, two volleyball courts, a small soccer pitch, two tennis courts, two four-square courts, four handball courts, new garden space, and a walking path. A recent report from the U.S. Council of Economic Advisors states that 47% of the American homeless population are now in California, the second most expensive state to live in. Furthermore, Los Angeles is one of the top 10 most expensive cities to live in in the United States. Recognizing the condition of our cities, Sticks and the Think Watts Foundation are working towards providing permanent supportive housing. I'm working, I have the political capital. I have the, the, the developing partners to develop. I have everything I need. I just need land. Hmm. But luckily, I've been um, fortunate to have meetings with, there's a company called HACLA, and everybody can look that up, H-A-C-L-A, which is a, the housing authority for Los Angeles. And uh, they're a huge, huge, huge company. They have a lot of real estate in areas like Watts, and they're doing a huge Watts redevelopment project. And uh, I'm going to attempt to work with them in perhaps acquiring some type of land to develop these permanent supportive housing units. How has that reception been and, um, and, you know, working together? It's been challenging. Not, it's not easy, especially when you're dealing with a force for good that strong. You're going to receive an, a massive amount of resistance. Uh, but... Every week I get closer and closer. I meet someone new or someone wants to meet me. And, and really that's what it comes down to is getting all your relationships together to uh, all work in unison so you can get things done. Now, where do we go from here? Richard Florida was on the right track with the relationship of cities and economies. However, it's the existing residents that should have access to resources and the knowledge-based industries that are coveted. But the major thing is you got to create careers, not resource, not just a small resource, but, and it's more bigger than just jobs because you can open up a pizza hut and give somebody a job. 
but can somebody pay for their home off of a Pizza Hut salary? No. I look at Watts and are places that's untapped now, like a Palmdale or Lancasters and stuff like that. I feel like there needs to be something that's built where more people from that community can be hired to do something long-term, a career that's long-term. Strong and healthy communities are one of the most powerful forces of success for a society. As designers, builders, political leaders, community leaders, and citizens, we must think more critically about our actions and their relationship to the barriers that are removed or created because of them. While community can be difficult to define, it's clear that resources and access play a role. We've come far in our understanding of what makes a great community. Now, it's time to embrace the idea that the more we nurture all communities, the healthier society will be. Uh, I don't know if I ever told you guys, Jason, Michelle, um, I went to this random dinner a um, few months ago with uh, a bunch of architects and someone brought up the question, what does community mean to you? And I was kind of stuck mm. and, we, and we had this long conversation about what does community mean? Mm. Um, Great question. Can- Ken, what do, what do you think? Well, how, how you know, a lot of times you'll, uh, getting back to a project, for example, you'll start off and have a conversation with the team and with your client and look at a piece of property and, and think about where it's located and what it is. And there's usually a conversation about, hey, should what should the amenity be? What should be the theming be? What should the design look like? And all good questions and things like that. To me, community is much broader than that. And that does sort of tie into the planning background. It's about attitude. It's about citizen participation. It's about um, the public realm. It's about synergy between uses. Uh, uh, and, and all of that in terms of tying it into the design aspect, when you start putting pencil to paper, that really, uh, I think, does mean about a certain level of uniqueness and, and authenticity to that place. Hmm. And if you do that kind of correctly, uh, it, it creates uh, places where people want to go. A lot of times we talk about aesthetics and what things look like, and Mm -hmm. and that's a natural sort of conversation to have. But uh, great places and great community is more than something that looks good. It's actually a place where people want to be and where they want to spend time. Yeah. Jason, you you look like you had a... Yeah, it was was interesting because my wife and I actually were talking about this last week. So we, we tend to take two or three walks a morning, you know, and, uh, during the week in the morning together, just kind of ditch the kids and go up (laughs) before, you know, when I get home from the gym and, and, uh, before we get ready and we're talking about community. And one of the things that she likes, because some of our friends live in more master plan, newer developments, right? We live in a fifties developed type area. Right. And she talks about, you know, I wish we had more walking spaces Mm -hmm. like these master plans do. And so she actually went and she was experiencing that one time and she realized she didn't really run into anybody Yeah. when she's on these you know, these paths and stuff like that, that seems so great or whatever it is. Whereas we go walking around our neighborhood and it's like, you know, you don't necessarily stop and talk. Good morning. Hello. You know, those kind of things. So it was funny because it was a different plan dynamic on what community really is like. Mm -hmm. So you got people that maybe like the nature idea, which Mm -hmm. I mean, who doesn't, right? Right. But does it really foster community necessarily? Maybe not, but that's what a lot of people think of, right? Like what a really cool amenity and community and that type of deal, but actually having to walk around each other's streets that are somewhat connected, you can actually get to know people a bit more, which I, when I talk about community, it's like knowing the people, not, you know, not like down to the nitty gritty, but like 
who's normally in our area and who doesn't belong here or, yeah. you know, because you, yeah. you got kids, you got all that kind of stuff. You're looking yeah. at that. So it's actually a different dynamic on the two, right? Um, whereas sometimes I'd prefer to have the deal and not have to see anybody <laughs> or talk to anybody. So I'd like yeah. to go through yeah. a nature situation like that. But um, I really I really think it means if you want to, you know, if, if you can create interaction, if yeah. somebody wants to have it, right? I totally agree with that. And it's uh, you mentioned something, too, sometimes you don't want to. Um, we like to use really sort of timeless design principles. Again, no matter how big or small a project is, uh, you know, it, it, there needs to be good bones. And, you know, great streets and great pedestrian connections and linkages. But there also needs to be an opportunity for, you know, tapping into the human experience of, you know, sometimes you want diversity and activity and other times you want serenity and space. And so uh, a little of all of that is what really goes into the the planning process to create great, great connections, physical, visual and emotional connections to the place. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Think it's such a personalized, individualized thing. It's hard to really define, and it also you can define it as a sort of a feeling, right? So the feeling of fellowship or the feeling of belonging. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can also describe community from more of a physical standpoint. I think as well. Yeah. So I think it's it's an interesting question. I can understand why you were um, stumped or sort of caught off guard of like, yeah. well, wait, how do I define community? What does that actually mean? Yeah, and. In in reference to community, it the conversation was interesting as well because of kind of what's in the news late, lately. Um, I don't know how familiar you guys are with the. Yeah, I don't watch the news. Uh, so yeah. film, film, film me in. There's nothing good, so fill me in. With the uh, they have all these different names: the apartment patty, permit patty. Uh, these people that are calling police on. African-American people that are either uh, like uh, uh, there's a group of people that were barbecuing, but they used coal instead of propane at at a park. Smoking them out. Tastes better. So they called uh, somebody called the police on them. And then there's another instance where a guy's walking around in his apartment and someone follows him all the way to his apartment door, chastising him, uh, basically questioning if he even lives there. And he had, he had his key and he's like, you know, leave me alone, leave me alone. I live here. And she followed him all the way to his apartment, just berating him about, you know, I don't trust you kind of thing. Um, and, and the question comes to me or what, what I think about a lot is as we get denser and we have, you know, all these apartments, it's a little bit difficult to create a community in apartments. Um, how do you start to do that? And then in the, you know, regular, plant development how do you create a uh, environment that helps foster community? i have thoughts for that okay I, I i believe it's part science and part art okay and the science part is every great community no matter how big or small uh, uh is systems based so uh, you need to do your homework initially up front you need to take time and do your homework about what the place is that you're creating. And that is on the pragmatic side, transportation, orientation, location, the, you know, engineering side, etc. But great places that foster, you know, good citizen interaction and participation do tap into the human experience of, and this is the part art part of, you know, sight and smell and sound and, and touch and, and place. And if you do that correctly, like if right now, if you think about your favorite places that you like to go to, mm-hmm. it's not something big. It's usually a detail. 
you know, I we my, one of my former partners uh, did Curling Commons. I'm thinking of that right now as we're talking in in Tucson, and I can't remember how many units it is, but I can mm-hmm. remember that the the trash cans are shaped like barrel cactus, you know, <laughs> and that there's depression in the cement that captures water, so it looks like you know it just rained in the desert. Yeah. I think design has a lot to do with, you know, creating and fostering and encouraging good citizen participation and interaction. It's not a new idea. I had a college professor at Cal Poly that would list a series of issues, uh, preservation of ag land, conditions of the downtown, energy conservation, um, uh, citizen participation, community aesthetics. And the punchline of that was it was an issue that was listed and, and satisfactorily addressed some 2,500 years ago in ancient Greece when all these beautiful jewels of cities along the Mediterranean were developed. And, you know, to a certain extent, those same design principles need to be applied today about creating place. Certainly, and you'd mentioned it, uh, uh, there are trends that are elevated now that you have to pay attention to. And one of those is citizen involvement, particularly with innovation and technology today. Mm. Social activation and citizen participation is, you know, on steroids. And yeah. so you have to make sure you're taking the time to listen in as part of your homework. The pragmatic side on all the function, the human side, but you got to pay attention to the human voices wherever you're doing work. Uh, or you can really make some mistakes. And, and a lot of times there are big takeaways that come out of that process that helps elevate the design, doesn't compromise it. Well, one thing I was thinking of when we're talking about that, right, the, the ideas that you had mentioned and wanting to foster community, like one of the, and we're talking technology, right? The yeah. other part that I look at that is that stifles it massively, right? So you've got more and more people that are staying inside the homes. More and more people that are on computers, iPads. Like, again, my yeah. wife and I were walking this morning. We were, she was sharing, sharing a story of one of my son's friends. That it's like he wakes up in the morning. First thing he does, he gets on an iPad. My kids yeah. don't do that. We don't allow that. But that's that's human nature right now. Yeah. Everybody sits down and it's, it's all through yeah. what uh, you know technology interaction type of deal. So do they really even want the interaction outside the house. And and I think one of the byproducts of that is now you're reading the news, you're seeing all this kind of stuff and you get all these, all the bad crap that's out there. Mm. And so now you have these people that are paranoid because the last time they had a true human interaction was like 12 years ago. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I think that's one of the other things that comes more into it. And even when you look at master plan communities now, like, I mean, I'm in them all day long, right? You guys see them and certainly you're familiar with them. You go down those streets like, even though there's everything that a community would want, you know what I mean? Like, that's in there. Are the people outside? Like, I can't, I talk to so many people and say, like, I don't even know their neighbors. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's another interesting dynamic that I think is at play. You can't force people out of your houses. You can't you know, force them to talk to each other. But, you know, but some of the amenities are off the chart. Like so you, here's, let's talk about amenities. Yeah. I, I think it's changed a lot. Um, actually, the number one amenity, we do a lot of research on that. Uh, great communities are also about four major areas of expertise, I believe. It's not just about design. It's sure. about market. And you just touched on it. Who are you designing for? Right. Who are the people that are actually going to live here that rent or buy? Who is it? Right. You really need to pay attention to that. Second part, most of my clients are landowners or developers or financial institutions. You know, I'm blessed to have great partners at KTGY that do architecture and work for builders. We have some of those clients too. But on the planning side, uh, the studio that I head up, we're kind of on the front end. And they have to make money. So the second part yeah. is there needs to be a financing strategy yeah. that makes sense. The third piece is design. It's just mm. as important. And the last one is you got to make sure you can get it approved, you know, and count sure. to three and work with the community in order to do that. 
our research uh, continuously, and particularly today, tends to be more, uh, trends are changing a little bit. Wellness and health yeah. and farm to table and trails and yeah. open space, even if you don't use it, is like the number one amenity that people sure. are looking for. And so we try to incorporate that where it's not buried. It's not one big thing. It's actually inter- interconnected to the entire community. We're working on a project up in Brea right now with Air Energy and Brook Street on uh, a project like this where... No matter where you are in the project, you're connected to that visual and physical and and emotional open space system, and you see it, and you've got access to it. What's interesting, too, you touched on the financing component of it, I think long-term. So if you think about communities that were developed in the 70s or 80s, you know, 30, 40, 50-year-old product or, or neighborhoods, the ones that have preserved value are the ones that have those green belts running through Correct the neighborhood, right? It's and not you a can new think, idea. right? Yeah. And you can think yeah. about, yeah. you know, think about like first neighborhood in Westlake Village up uh-huh. in Vin, uh, Ventura County or yeah. LA County. Yeah. Uh, you think about, you know, East Bluff in Newport mm-hmm. Beach. Uh-huh. I mean, these neighborhoods have all preserved value because yeah. they have these yeah. these connectivities between neighborhoods. And there's a strong connection to nature. And we often like to think that water is a big part of the magic also. So if you go to like one of, our, yeah. one of my projects you mentioned, La Floresta in Brea, the, the thing that everybody remembers there is the, the fountain and the water and the community gathering place out on the corner. And so we try to incorporate some those elements of nature, even if it's in an urban environment, uh, to help facilitate good planning and design. Is that one of the elements that you intentionally incorporated to kind of activate um, it's an element that we often try to think about. I try to, um, uh, we try not to come from an ivory tower. Every place should have its own sort of unique characteristics. Sometimes it gets forced. You know, back, you had mentioned in the 70s and 80s, there was a lot of, hey, the next big thing to do is a lake. We need a project with a lake. Well, there's a lot of reasons today where maybe that's not the best use of the land. It takes up a lot of land. It's maybe not so environment. You know, there's a stronger today with resiliency being sort of the planning buzzword these days, you know, which is how do you design places that should be located in places where they should or shouldn't be located? <laughs> um, it's a, a serious issue uh, globally, actually, on how and where projects are being planned and, and developed. Uh, sometimes that's not the, the right thing to do. So you need to sort of think about, uh, I've got a project in San Ysidro we're working on right now, and it is a fully entitled project that has a lake uh, that has large single-family lots on it, and it just doesn't make sense today. And so we're re- revising that, that land plan to have a more integrated open space system where there's, it's also a little bit of the haves and haves-nots. So the people that live right next to the lake get the amenity, but not anybody else. And if you've got an open space system that's connected to the entire project, whether it's attached or, you know, attainable housing or it's a more expensive residential, it's all connected through the open space system. And that's so those are some trends we're working on these days that I think resonate to who our potential end users are. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned La Floresta. Um, can you jump back and let's, I want to go into detail sure. a little bit on La Floresta. Okay. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yeah, it's a really fun. You know, I feel I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I've got divert. You know, you'd mentioned it. I've been able to work on diverse projects. That's what planners do. You get to work on <laughs> golf yeah. course resorts or urban infill or yeah. a cool project in Little Saigon or La Foresta. La Foresta was a great story. That was originally Chevron's research facilities. Yeah. Huh. It was the global location for deep sea oil exploration in the North Atlantic, and they had a bunch of guys with pocket protectors, you know, walking underneath little scientific buildings. The cool thing about that site was all the pipes and all the oil and all the testing, you could walk underneath, you know, all the buildings, they were all above your head. So the ground was very clear 
clean, actually, at La Floresta. It made sense at one point to convert that to, to housing. Um, uh, it's a good story. I'm glad you asked about it. The, uh, it was also the location of the Hartley Center, which was this beautiful William Pereira circular uh, single-purpose building. We, we tried to do adaptive use for it. didn't make sense. But if you look at the land plan, there's a little nod to it. Our curvilinear streets and that corner element, you know, in the holidays, you, you grew up in that area. You'd always see the, you know, the holiday decorations yeah. on the building and the great lawn. We yeah. needed to do something special on that corner. And our streets have this sort of semicircle uh, nod to that, that original design. Anyway, the, uh, the real story, though, was at the time when that market was ready, Chevron wanted to get into the development business. And they wanted to do something that people that would have it would be memorable. Mm-hmm. And at the time, the fastest way to develop that property would have been all 6,000 square foot lots, sell it, and you're done. Uh, that's not what we did. We did a lot of research. And at that time, uh, we found out that more people per capita grew up in Brea and still lived in Brea yeah. than, than any other city in, in Orange County, but there wasn't any place to live. So we knew God, people love Brea. They're connected to their place of worship, to you know schools. They don't want to leave, but there's no place for them to live. So we were pretty front end on this. It's common now, but that project, three of the development areas were age qualified. It was a project that uh, needed to have a mix of residential and a town center and uh, you know i'm a little bit older right now but i still think i'm 30 in my mind and and a place where you could stay in brea and still be connected to market rate you know residential and go to the town center and but still have your exclusivity and resort feel but be connected to uh, a uh, a broader demographic so that's why the project developed the way it did was we wanted to have a mix of residential opportunities and a town center uh, that reflect it gave you the ability to not have to actually leave. Can, yeah, can you talk about uh, that complexity of balancing that sort of broad demographic and and how does that influence? Um, your design sort of specifically it's a challenge you need to uh, uh we did a lot of homework on that project we formed the friends of la floresta we did uh different tactics on get listening listening is really big to the community uh, uh you all know that but but it's more than just saying what do you guys want it's trying to figure out what people's hopes dreams and desires and their fears really are and uh, and so you need to sort of listen carefully. So we spent a lot of time of what people were looking for. And they were looking for something that was walkable, that had an urban feel to it. Um, like any project, there's a few little compromises here and there. The original purist, if no one's involved, we had a pedestrian connection right from that corner going all the way straight up. But when Whole Foods came in, there was a little bit of negotiation. The pedestrian connection's still there, but it jogs a little bit. Little things like that. The framework is there. And uh, so it was, it was a, a, it took time actually to understand the market, the finance, uh, uh, and the design side, and ultimately get it approved, all those four things. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was quite a bit of a process, actually. Yeah. I got, I got a random question. So when yeah. you walk in that job site, how many times did you eat a PK burger right there? Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I, you know what? I still need to lose about 20 pounds right now. <laughs> People from the area know, man. Anytime you go by there, you have to stop. It's a tiny little joint that's I'll just t- awesome. I'll, I'll tell you. Do I have time for a quick story? Yeah, I'll, yeah, yeah, I'll tell you a listening story. This is one of my favorite listening stories. You, you need to hear you know, what you're really hearing. I, I met a mayor from back east when I was mayor of your Belinda, and he told the story about his parents' 70th wedding anniversary. And at the end of the night, and it was a nice affair and everything, his mother was standing saying nice things about his dad and she concluded her comments saying you know what after all these years he's been tried and true and uh, his father didn't
didn't hear very well. And he was sitting next to him and said, what'd she say? And he goes, dad, mom said after all these years, you're tried and true. And without missing a beat, he said, will you tell her after all these years, I'm tired of her too. That's great. That's what makes it work. Yeah. So you need to listen carefully and make sure you're hearing what you think you're hearing. That's hilarious. Uh, Ken, so so we talked a lot about community so far. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that's not all planners do. No. You guys dig into kind of wrestling down transportation and that sort of arena as well, right? Mm-hmm. Parking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where where are you gonna put all those cars? You know yeah. what? It's funny you say that. That's probably uh that's probably the first thing the number that gets one talked issue. about. Oh, it's yeah. the number one Every issue. Every single project. Yeah, every project. You know what? I'll, you mentioned something earlier also I want to uh, pick up on. People staying home and not getting out. That you know, what are what are some of the trends? You know, I mentioned the ancient Greeks. Some of those issues are the same. I don't know. A few years ago, and these are still there too: housing and mobility and parking and environment. But there are some trends right now that are uh, are very different. Uh, uh, cities are trying to figure out how to pay for police and fire, and so there's a lot of leveraging going on with what we refer to as P3s, a public-private partnership, where there's development opportunity, but the city owns the land, but they know they're not developers. So, you know, moving forward with that, we'd, we'd mentioned the wellness, we'd mentioned demographics, but innovation is changing the way people are thinking and and living, just as you had indicated. And I'm more on the glass half full side of it. I know that you got to get, gotta look up or pick up the phone. I just was, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. my younger staff, you know, have a talk to somebody. Yeah. Get out of your chair yeah. and go talk. Yeah. But on the design side, we have to. This is really cool. I mean, you don't uh, sit, you, you know, you don't now go to Montgomery Wards. You guys probably don't know who Montgomery Wards is and buy I, your. I remember it does sound the, familiar. It, I remember the name. You don't go there and buy your toaster there anymore. You do that online. So retail and commercial has to be experiential. You have to provide people. People, things there it relates to parking but things there that you can't find when you're on your computer buying a, a, a microwave and so that needs to be you know the all those human experience elements water and sight and sound and smell and usually an adult beverage or something yeah, so that helps so though that ha- you have to kind of create place which I think is actually exciting because it's uh, it taps into those uh, elements that you would want to have people go to anyway well it's funny because the argument with so many people like I was saying the social social interaction Interactions yeah. is slowing, I'll call it, right? Yeah. But at the same point, I always tell people, I was like, go into a retail location because everybody tells you retail is dead, right? And I said, yeah. it's not dead. Uh-uh. It needs to be reimagined because here's the reason, with that. Here's the reason yeah. why. Yeah. And I realize we do this once in a while, but yeah. there's a lot of checkout lines, right? There's the self-checkouts everywhere. Mm-hmm. You ever notice when there's one or two tellers, though? Yeah. What's the bigger line? Yeah. The tellers. Yeah. People, the other ones will be open where you can go in to do the self-checkout. Right. And when I want to run through, I want to run through. But there's yeah. still that interaction yeah. that I'll call right. it subconsciously is craved by yeah. people. Yeah. So there's still a desire for it. It just yeah. needs to be reimagined. Yeah. Part of that's just old people like me that, that don't want to do the self-serve thing. Though, some. Some. Maybe maybe a percentage. But the truth is even yeah, individuals, right. and I'm getting older yeah. too, but yeah. even younger individuals, they'll go and they'll want to, see, right. they'll want to have – they don't realize it, but they want yeah. that interaction. So we that. just need to reimagine it uh-huh. somehow because yeah, yeah, it's not yeah, dead. It's yeah, just yeah. that part hasn't evolved well enough, I should say. I'll tell you, one of the areas that we're really excited about that we're doing a lot of work in right now is the sort of reimagine. I like that word, reimagining mm-hmm. malls. That's happening sure. everywhere across the country. Now. Sure. So, yeah. That'd be an interesting yeah, topic. Yeah. 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 I think is that uh, on top at some point. Yeah. yeah we, it's on the list. We'll yeah. have to okay. yeah. get back into it. But, um, we talked about you worked on Arctic. Yes. I keep wanting to say Arctic. The Anaheim uh, Regional Intermodal Transportation yeah. Center. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about 
the, that experience. It's a really cool building. Thanks. Extremely distracting when you're on the freeway. Yeah, that was part <laughs> of the point. When the ducks are in town, it's orange. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Uh, yeah. Thanks. Uh, you know, that I'm really proud of that project. Uh, uh, we did the planning and the master planning. Uh, did not do the architecture for it, but we set the framework. This is actually a great segue to also what planners do. We and did a master plan for that overall area. Yeah. And and talk about what it is specifically. Yeah. I, I know you mentioned what uh, Arctic is. Yeah, Arctic is the world's first platinum lead certified transit station uh, in on, on the globe, okay. and the vision for Arctic was to create a hub uh, for transit that would connect buses and rail and cars and people to an emerging district. I've worked in Anaheim my whole career. The Honda Center was my project, Arctic. We're working there now. Uh, and uh, the vision for the area was to utilize OCTA. In Orange County, we pay a half-cent sales tax. Uh, we were we felt we were tired of sending all our taxes to uh, Sacramento and never get it in return. So the reason why we have bridges and great roads and we have transit centers is, by law, I'm generalizing, but generally a third of those taxes have to go to roads a third of it has to go to transit, and a third of it goes to uh, highways and bridges and things. So that money needs to be spent. And so uh, Anaheim uh, was selected. There's a story behind all that. But Anaheim was selected for the location for Arctic, and we designed that not just as a station, but actually as another landmark that would connect to the Angel Angels and a new stadium that's being planned right now, the Honda Center and this transit center, but allow for development to occur over time. So when you look at our, and we set up the guidelines, we wanted that to have be futuristic, but have a nod to the past. So mm -hmm. it has views when you're inside that building of the Honda Center, of the big A. It has the shape that is a bit of a nod to the, you know, the, the air base in Tustin mm -hmm. where you had the blimps uh, entering it exiting it's uh the uh, etft materials what's used on it that was used on the beijing water cube so you can color it different colors and things and uh, uh the the planning side though that's pretty interesting was the par the surface parking lot out front was we designed that to allow for vertical development when the market would support it right now there's wrap the residential in the anaheim stadium area podium is more expensive you need to charge higher rents mm -hmm. so there needs to be a cool place but we designed that surface parking lot with a 60 foot wide pedestrian way so when vertical development takes place you can have a second level connecting to arctic going across catella and we were really blessed the honda center hired us to help them advise on the terrace out front that terrace that's in front of the honda center that's a kind of yeah. a cool place to hang yeah. that's designed so it's at the exact right level to come across catella and tie into vertical development really that takes place and that's that's, awesome. that's our, our the long-term vision and master plan was to have an urban so place you could just you, you got retail residential bus in train in whatever you gotta do and then go straight over wow, correct that's really cool. yeah. and then tie that into the disney resort so can you talk about um the locate the land itself so so anaheim I'm assuming own the land or how did, how did they get yeah, access it was, it or how did OCTA? There's a, even a deeper history behind that. The Honda center got built where it got built because at that time, that's actually one of the most intense public hearing processes I've ever gone through in my life. We had a uh, public hearing the day after Christmas. That does not occur. <laughs> the reason why we did that is at the time Santa Ana had a, uh, proposal to do a project called West Dome at the corner of the 55 freeway in Edinger. And there was a race between that group and between Ogden and the city of Anaheim, whoever builds, builds, gets approved and builds an arena first, you know, gets it. So that site uh, where the Honda Center w w is located was the only site that the city owned. 
And, uh, and that's what, what sort of draw, drove that sports facility. The Arctic made sense. It was the, uh, the piece just south of it that was uh, um, a public agency land that they were also able to cut a deal with and, and develop the transit center at that location. The reason I ask is, so from a planning standpoint, if you're really being honest with yourself yeah. about public transit, yeah. when you really look at the aerial and the constraints that where Arctic is located has, you've got the Santa Ana River on one side, you have the 57 freeway, mm-hmm. you have a giant sports facility, which is neat, and that's great to hear about the connection. But yeah. from kind of the walkability, pedestrian people living there, you know, yeah. living, working, getting rid of the car altogether and, and really being able to use that as like central station, so yeah. to speak. Right. That opportunity doesn't really seem to be there, even the long term. Like that surface parking lot that you talk about, uh-huh. it, yeah, that can be maybe one project that turns into- It's more than one project. But let me, So let me talk about that. Yeah, so, that's- So I'm a curious. couple of things are, you are given the- environment in which you find yourself that that was the only public land that was able to be developed for transit that was on the railroad the uh, the land on the other side was owned and uh by others and controlled by others and uh i actually believe in the long run and that's what uh, we were excited about our master plan if you look at it right now i think it's pretty easy to get to that conclusion but we developed several development parcels that go in front of arctic that allow for vertical development the back side of arctic too where you see the little solar parking area uh, and that triangle triangle we actually designed that for another station. And if you go to Arctic and walk out to that bridge, that was designed to allow for high-speed rail if and when it came. The platform was designed, we repositioned underneath the 57 freeway. The length of that platform extends all the way over to the Anaheim Stadium side. Yeah. We also believe that you can go vertically above the freeway. You have to work with Caltrans. But uh, that triangle on the backside of Arctic that hasn't been developed yet out well. would allow for you to go vertical and connect over to, imagine a future Anaheim Stadium Right next to that. So I, there, you are absolutely correct. There are constraints there. But I also think in our, our land plan, if you go back and look at our graphics, uh, our recommendation is to put water in that Santa Ana River again. Years ago, we had a yeah. false dam like we have in yeah. Phoenix, and you've yeah. got water 24-7, and people are jet skiing out jet there. Jet jam. Yeah. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, I do remember that. Where, so, where was that at? Jet jam in the Santa Ana River. Yeah. Right You're there. kidding. No, it was awesome. No. Yeah. In fact, my, se- my design director, Jeff Graney, what year was he, that? used to do his jet ski out there. What yeah. year was yeah. that? That's yeah. amazing. I forget what year it was, but that if you look at our drawings, people say, well, that's not true. You Googling know, water that now. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was all look up jet jam. Anaheim, it was awesome. You're right. In a perfect scenario, if a, a land, if you could have a, an area where there's nothing developed around it, and you don't have freeways and things, you know, could it be in a better location? Sure. But, well, I'm yeah. all about infill yeah. development. Yeah. I just look at yeah. kind of the housing opportunity to provide housing at at all different product types, yeah. both for sale, multifamily, yeah. different densities, different styles, all of that. Um, that location for Arctic yeah. doesn't it, but, it doesn't give but, me that. But let me so do, let me get one more bite on that. I think, and we designed this to allow for physical connections, whether that's a gondola or that's a monorail or that's a streetcar that would make that uh, more of an urban hub rather than a sea of uh, asphalt where the Angel Stadium is, for example. And it's closer than you think if you can actually figure out. But I think here's the other thing, too. Like you're saying it's long-term play. Yeah. Right. And it's what I think play. what I think has lacked a lot and the yeah. reason why you find yourself yeah. so landlocked these yeah. days is that there was no long term vision for these things. Yeah. So if you talk about the new stadium that's supposed to go at some point, well, what yeah. do you think is going to happen to the old stadium? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it, there's in, there's even that one product development that's on the parking lot there. There's a there's a high density project there. So, I mean, we're going to get more. 
Everything's more and more high density. I believe that entire parking lot goes vertical. The old Agreed. stadium gets torn down. There's a brand new stadium Agreed. that's built and becomes this really cool gas Agreed. lamp kind and of. And you kind of have ga- yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say it's like San Diego, like Petco Park or whatever, whatever the one is. I yeah. mean, if you've ever walked that, yeah. because I'm a big fan of San Diego and how they built a lot of that yeah. stuff there, you've got a community. Yeah. built around a ballpark, which is kind of cool. Now, right. I'll argue yeah. with that right. baseball's dying, whatever. Let's put a nice rink in there. But at least we got one for Honda Center hey, as well. Hey, now you're done. No, no, I know you're right. It's slowed down. But, yeah. uh, but God, I don't know. The Angels, Mike Trout, that's my guy. Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. But I'm, I'm just joking on the sports side. Of it, but, it's I like, but I think but that's what I see as well. And I think yeah. what's fundamental in that whole piece is the long-term vision about how you're going to be able to access that. Because, again, I'll tell you, the reason why we don't have all the urban feel in a lot of areas is because there was no thought. I don't want to say no thought. Small thought or small runway thought provided for those areas that has created the barriers that you're referring to right yeah. now. I, that's my yeah. opinion. I also think here it's sort of one of the things we try to bring into a lot of our projects is that we've got this great weather here in Southern California. And if you travel the country, you go to these places that you do sort of think about or fun to be at, whether it's Deep Elm in Dallas or, you know, you get in Atlanta, you know, you go to the Ponce City Market. And you, there's outdoor spaces that are uh, uh, elevated. And we don't have a lot of that in Southern California. So I think there's an – and San Diego has done a good job. I think there's an opportunity here in Orange County for more of that to occur too. And it would be fun to take advantage of the weather that we have so ken uh we're gonna wind down a little bit but i wanted to make sure that i get a few questions in Uh, i wanted to get you to share your perspective on being on the other side Mm -hmm. on the on the city council on the mayor's side what what was your experience on that side dealing with planning jobs and how can people get through jobs faster and yeah it does give you a really good perspective i did it for the right reasons. i loved it even when i hated it (laughs) (laughs) you have to do it for the right reasons i actually ask people why you're running for office and there should be one or two answers and hopefully both you want to do things and you want to help people if it's anything else well because i'm going to be a congressman someday or i'm going to run for assembly no you know at the local level you are it is at the local level and you're fixing potholes and you're dealing with issues every day it's sort of it's really interesting you sort of think a council member goes to council meetings that's the sideshow you know, every day you're like a CEO. You're dealing every day with transportation and finance and economic development and development proposals and human resource issues. And you're basically, it's really fun. You can actually make your city look better. I can drive around your Berlin and point to just about everything that was developed, you know, during that era. And hey, you know, we, we, you had your finger on it, but it's not for the limelight or the glory. Mm-hmm. You know, it is not. You have to be able to do the right thing and go to bed at night and sleep really good. Otherwise it would, you would drive you crazy. It's not for the faint of heart. Uh, learned a lot of great lessons from it i would still encourage people to do it even though it is it is uh, pretty much warfare and you have to have thick skin mm-hmm. um i'll tell you a quick story on that i said uh, jerry amante is a good friend of mine he's a former was a great mayor in tustin i remember i was on business in china and i saw that he was getting recalled and i wrote him this little note and i said hey jerry i see you're getting recalled i have no idea what it's about and frankly i don't care you must be doing something really good keep up the good work you know, uh, there are, it's political warfare that takes place and you just have to have thick skin and do the, do it for the right reasons. And it's, uh, it gives you great insight from a, you know, I've worked in the private sector my whole life of, of what you need to do and, and how you need to do it in terms of processing at city hall, Yeah, you know, and working with staff and working with the community and working with council members. And that's about trust. It's about trust and finding the public benefit. Here's my other takeaway for you. Whatever your project is, it's human nature to talk about, we've got this really cool dog park and whatever, you know, that might be great, but you need to find the public benefit and spend time. It takes more time to do this. Don't just do one big community meeting. Take the time to meet quietly and individually and listen 
And you will find out some of the things that are really important to people that can share what the public benefit is. It might not even be your project. It might be something else that doesn't have anything to do with you about why you would be a good asset to fit into what we started this conversation off today about the community and how you're connecting there. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, that takes some finesse, but, it, but it's important to do that. When you say take your time to meet with people, are you talking yeah. about with council people or people in the community? Yes. <laughs> okay. Council, <laughs> planning commission, citizens, staff. Yeah. It's about relationships and trust and about hearing, you know, what the vision is for an area or what the issues are. Yeah. Oh, I'll, one other quick story. I recent we're doing work out in Cabazon and Oh, a bunch of neighbors are all upset, like, you know, what, what, uh, what, you know, and there's a lot, a lot of venting going on and everything. And I just said, and we're, this is like a 2000 acre project. We're working for, I'm blessed and we're for the Native Americans. The Morongos are one of our client. And finally, I just sort of, you know, we've got a 2000 acre master plan where I said, well, what do you want? And the, and the woman said, we want a splash pad. So all of this, all of this discussion, <laughs> yeah. and okay, just build a splash pad, and the neighbors are going to be thrilled. You know, it was it was a no brainer. That's funny though. Sometimes it's that easy. Yeah, sometimes. Well, other not very times often. though, it's it's a lot more <laughs> but, complicated. But I think, yeah. but I think the biggest thing we want to pay attention to for yeah. a lot of our listeners, we had some young listeners who are yeah. getting going in their careers and stuff like that. I don't care what the subject is, yeah. whether it's any piece of business or individual we've talked about, and you listen to someone who's got a lot of experience in this. It's relationships. Yeah. And we're talking about the sociability issues that we're facing these days and those types of things. Yeah. You have to learn to be able to interact and communicate and create relationships with people no matter what your area of business is. Whether it's being an architect, whether it's trying to make deals happen, whether it's doing whatever the hell it is I do. <laughs> you have to be able to create relationships. You will get absolutely nowhere if you don't understand how to look somebody in the eye and shake their hand and find something that's mutually beneficial for the two of you. I couldn't it agree will more with that. It will not occur. Couldn't agree more with that. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. That's why we got hired to do Arctic. There you go. Right. Yeah. Uh, Ken, let's let's wrap or let's uh, finish with this last question. Sure. Uh, moving forward, what can designers, developers, builders, planners uh, do to make um, communities and development better? That's a great question. I think um, in five words or less. I'm yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah, the short answer to that is I think there needs to be more concurrent process and a more open-minded recognition to you create great places if you blend the design from a design perspective, architecture, landscape architecture, planning, and put the right people together and share and listen. You'll end up with a better solution. That and, and that process needs to be more current and less linear. I think in our business we tend to go from figuring out politics, figuring out the design, figuring out the finance, moving forward, hiring a landscape architect. It, it tends to be linear. And if you do that in a more concurrent manner, you end up solving problems and creating a better place in a, in a stronger way. Hmm. Interesting. For the last thing, our, uh, we were doing a new segment this year that we call... I don't dance or anything, do we? Or no? okay. <laughs> you can if, <laughs> you, can if you want, but the okay. camera's off. All right. okay. <laughs> we can turn it on. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But the segment is called, What Was That Like? Hmm. And I know you mentioned uh, being a mayor and you were in China. Hmm. You mentioned that a little bit earlier. I, I've heard of an interesting story. Uh, what was it like 
for you being a mayor while you were in China? Oh my gosh. You know, I, that was a, that was actually a trip of a lifetime. I had, I got invited, you know, Yorba Linda was mayor. So that's the yeah. birthplace of Richard Nixon. And, uh, we're uh, real honored. We're just getting getting going on actually uh, uh, working with the library again. But uh, as mayor of Yorba Linda and, and Richard Nixon, regardless of your politics, one of the enigmatic you know political figures in the history of the United States. Anyway, he opened up relations to China in 1972. So I got invited. This was when I was at Ida, by the way, and we had seven offices in China. Had other partners there, and this the very first Sino International uh, conference with. Uh, uh, Hiro Mori, one of the richest developers in Japan, he built that tall building in Shanghai that has a half circle. The original design that was a full circle, but then China realized, wait, this is a full circle. We don't want that right in downtown. Uh, Hiro Mori was on this panel. Uh, Fen Lun, who was at the time the richest uh, Chinese businessman, uh, an, a gentleman from Russia, forget his name, and and Ken Ryan from Yorba Linda, you know, <laughs> and so and we had interpreters in a big, you know, everything's a big celebration over there. Interpreters you know, doing all this, but. Uh, we had a pre, you know, pre-conference sort of with the press and everything, and there were more cameras and more people surrounding the, the mayor of Yorba Linda than Fenn and these other people. <laughs> it was a crack up because I brought gifts from the Nixon Library, of course, you know, and did my my mayor's thing. But it was uh, he, he's like Elvis Presley in China, so the, to the mayor coming from the birthplace of Richard Nixon was a big deal. That's, that's cool. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that's cool. Uh, yeah, I could just imagine just you standing on the side yeah, and all the other people looking. Like... There's that movie, that thing you do where the band's playing at some point and the guitar player looks at you know the, the main guy in that movie and says, how did we get here? You know, yeah. it was one of those moments. You know, cool. like... <laughs> Very cool. That's funny. Okay, Ken. Uh, right. Thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you to Sticks for sharing his work with the Think Watts Foundation. You can find out more information at thinkwatts.com. That's thinkwatts.com. And follow him at Watts Sticks on all social media platforms. That's W A T T S S T I X. And thank you again to Ken Ryan for joining us and sharing his expertise. You can find out more information about him and his company, KTGY, at ktgy.com. Thank you again for spending some time with us. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate or like it and leave a review. It helps others find us. So it's all up to you. If you really love what we're doing, sharing us with your friends is even better. If you stumbled upon the show, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss another episode. And if you're still listening, next time on Spaces Podcast. From beginning to end, from the f- see if anyone is listening to this and they want to do a custom home, I'm afraid to say because then they're <laughs> going to run for the hills. But that one from beginning to end took eight and a half years. Holy yeah. crap. Because that Seriously? was like Crazy. lawsuits and yeah, going to so That's brutal. The architectural that, style is changing that same period. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, but that's, that was that's, just a, a, that's an outlier. I mean, that is an outlier. Yeah.
Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.